Welcome back to the base. Speaking of rants, everybody was just clowning me for, for my rants, but um, you know, I consider that part of my brand and uh, not sure I'm ready to, to let it let it go yet. Uh, we're back this week with another episode. I'm your host, Fred Curtis. Got my co-host, Becca Nyberg. Becca, how are you? I'm hanging in there. Nyberg, right? Said it right, right? Yes, finally. Oh, After oh. years of practicing, hey. you finally got it. Hey, if at first you don't succeed, you shall try again. Uh, <laughs> Special guest today, Nithin. I'm I I should know how to say your last name. I'm not even gonna lie. Ben um, It's it's a long one. It's a long no no no. That's still that's still bad. I went peak like colonial white person there. Like doesn't matter. I should know how to say your name. Uh, yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, man. I only worked together for two years. Come on. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> for joining cool. us today, man. Um, yeah, you should probably give some background. Like, this is getting the gang back together. Hey, yeah, the gang, yeah. the 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 gang is back to get. Actually, you should give us the background. I think you're going to be more uh, more succinct with it. <laughs> Me, okay. Um, yeah, Fred and so, I are not known for being succinct. Yes. Fair enough. I mean, I, I also have a tendency to rant. You can ask my interns. Um, but that being said, I'm Senator Hester's uh, current chief of staff. So we all met on the Katie Fry Hester campaign. Um, I remember I was in college at the time, so I was studying in between and I heard that Fred had joined the campaign. He gives me a call and just goes, what do I need to know? <laughs> I was like, no introduction, just, hey, Fred, what do I need to know about this? And I was like, I appreciate the directness, but let's go for it. So, um, you know, Fred, Becca, and I worked together. I did more of the digital comm stuff than anything else, and Fred and Becca were doing a lot of the ground game. Um, but it was, it was an incredible campaign. I had never been involved in politics before. I had really just never thought about it. Um, you know, I grew up in Howard County. I wanted to do science and, and, and be a doctor at some point, which seems like a lifetime ago, even though that was like approximately eight months ago. But, you know, the pandemic has destroyed time. Um, Need. So, yeah. So it, after the campaign, Senator Hester kind of offered me a, a job on, on staff as legislative director. And I was like, great, I'm going to learn a ton and then go to med school. You know, because I'm a, a blind optimist is what I've learned about myself in the past couple of years. Um, so I got involved, ended up really loving it. I mean, I think part of it is that like I got into it purely because of the service aspect, um, mainly because I never really wanted a career in politics. <laughs> I still kind of don't. Um, but that fair. being no. said, <laughs> it, it, like you kind of stumbled into it and, and I, I just kind of realized there's a lot of impact that could be done here. So I, I really loved learning from everyone. I am the youngest on this podcast by far, but I've learned so much from the people on it. So I have to thank both of you. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the background and, and things have changed over time, but we're happy to get the band back together. It's going to be a great one. Yeah. Well, this guy's being modest for one. Uh, and number two, just for, for those who might need a little bit more context, uh, Katie Friester is a state senator in Maryland. So we met um, doing some political work in Maryland. Uh, I didn't know I was that direct. I should have been a little more. I could at least introduce myself. Sorry about that. I know it's part of my brand too. That's something I'm trying to work on actually. It was great. Yeah, you were thrown into the fire, man. <laughs> you were just like, let's go. There was, there was a mess. <laughs> so you were just like, right, let's, get, let's get to it. And I'm, um, I appreciated that. Well, it worked out. Um, and Nathan's just a way no, better. And, he's, and yeah, Nathan's definitely being modest because if anybody who worked on a campaign knows that it is 24-7 chaos and and just yep. hurting cats all over the place and you very quickly figure out who the people are 
that you're working with that you can call and something will get done. And yep. it was like number one on that list. Yep. <laughs> well, hey, I appreciate it. I was in between my uh, my neurobiology classes and the campaign for plenty of time. So I was sitting in, in my lectures doing campaign work. Probably got why I got a B plus in, in my neurophys class. So. That's fine. It worked out for you. <laughs> yeah, it, I have no regrets. I regret nothing. <laughs> No regrets. <laughs> yeah, the terrible B plus. Oh my goodness. How, how would I? Neurobiology. Ugh, you must I mean, be so ashamed. I have a similar story. I, 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 uh, I went my entire undergrad. I started my political science classes like the second semester sophomore year and did not get another B until um, literally the last final I took in college. And so from that class, I got a B. And I was, I was, I was pretty angry about that. That's something that still kind of stings me. You know, like I had like a 27 A class winning streak going and it just got snapped. Um, I'm never getting yeah, over man. that. So I got a B plus in piano my sophomore year and that was the thing that snapped it for me. Oh. And that was a tough one. Piano one. My, my, D, my D flat major scales just never really got into shape. That was the issue. If you got a B plus, that probably means you sound like Bach then instead of Mozart, right? Box a guy, right? Like, no, not even close, but I'll take the compliment. For okay. sure. I don't know if I even put the right names out there, but it's fine. Um, Just a master of classical composition, but sure, that's a B plus. Yeah. We, we got high standards over here, all right? That's what separates us from the rest of the pack. Um, anyway, speaking of high standards, that is not what we have for uh, in, in presidential politics right now. Uh, Tuesday was the first presidential debate. There are lots of superlatives you can throw out, ways you can characterize what happened. Um, I particularly love Dana Bash's um, characterization, which was, uh, it was a shit show. Uh, I love that she just said it. She's like, this is cable. She's like, I'm not going to call it anything else. Like quite literally, no, crap show doesn't explain it correctly. Like there's no other way to say it except like it was a shit show. Um, mostly, I will say, and I flipped back and forth between uh, CNN, MSNBC, and I think CBS for a little bit of time. So try to get multiple viewpoints. I'm not watching Fox News. I used to actually watch Fox News for 30 minutes a day just to like have some other side of the coin. I know, I know it's not news, but I do think there's value in at least knowing what other folks say. I'm not doing that anymore just because like that channel has completely gone off its rocker. And when you say Fox News has gone off its rocker, you know, something's gone off its rocker. Anyway, um, between the three networks, pretty much the same thing. I did appreciate that there were most networks who at least, you know, characterized the shit show nature of the debate as primarily, if not entirely belonging to the president. Um, I would give Chris Wallace some of that as well, even though I think he was in a very peculiar and difficult um, circumstance. But um, I'm going to ask a very open-ended question. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway from the first debate? Let's go to you first, Nathan. <laughs> so, I guess there are two aspects of this that I feel like should be disaggregated quite a bit is that like what this says about the United States and where we are right now and then the political ramifications of the race because I think the two get conflated quite a bit and yeah. they start to the lines in, 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 all, in all the commentaries. So first, what this says about the U.S. My parents immigrated here in the 80s, right? I think if you told them in the 80s that this is what a presidential debate would look like in 2020, they would lose their mind. Right, they're, they're like, that's not even possible. I mean, up to last year, my mom was telling me, right, like this, this country won't let this happen because X, Y, and Z reasons. I mean, they really believe in the American experiment. I got into politics because I believed that the election of Donald Trump 
<laughs> represents a real threat to the American experiment. And this debate encapsulated it in so many ways because I think fundamentally politics has to be an exchange of ideas between people. Otherwise, it's really not achieving any goal, right? This was not an exchange of ideas. This was 100% the opposite of that thing. This was Donald Trump largely shouting over Joe Biden for an hour and a half while Chris Wallace tries to interject like a mom between two kids who are fighting. It was so painful. No, a mom would have done a much better job. Just a saying. father over two kids fighting. A mom would have done a much better job, absolutely. And, and I think that it represents a, a, a large devolution in our ability to have political discourse in this country. I mean, I think it really does encapsulate that point very well, which is just one side shouting into the ether and the other side trying to hold its wits. But really, I mean, like, how can you? I mean, I felt bad for Joe Biden in a lot of instances because, like, I don't really know what you do in that situation. When someone's just shouting lies and nonsense over you constantly, it's, it's really, really bad. So it was tough to watch. It was really sad for me just to watch that be the state of political discourse and go, there's not a single policy point that you can pull out of that debate that goes, oh, someone made a good point. It was just shouting. Yeah. Um, in terms of the race as a whole, I really don't think it shifted a whole lot, right? Which, I mean, I think like the, the big the big brain, like smart thing to say about all of that that's been going around is just that that's a net win for Joe Biden, I guess, right? Because if you're Donald Trump going in this race, I'm not that they have a strategy on, their, on that side of the campaign, but you know. Oh, going I disagree in, with that one. I think that was actually very, that that act, that, that way of talking, um, I've seen recently that, that's the way to disrupt somebody with a speech disorder and make them really stutter. So the whole way that he did all of that was actually to try and trip Biden into starting to stutter, which of course his base is taking as signs of dementia. Gotcha. I so it may very well have been strategic, just, you know. It failed really miserably. A jerk strategic move, right? Yes. But yeah, there might, be, there might have been some strategic nature to it. That's fair enough. I had not thought about that. That definitely does make sense. I mean, incredibly ableist, very much not a good move. I felt like the angrier Joe Biden got, the better he was at debating. You know, like he got sharper as time went on. I, I feel agree. like he started off a little bit slow. And then as he got a little bit like concerned about things, he was just like, okay, well, I'm, I'm really going to hammer down. I think he got better over time. That being said, I still think this, this race has been characterized by a stability that has just not shifted. It has constantly been 42, 47, 41, 48. Like, no matter what yeah. Like no matter what happens, everything stays exactly the same. I don't think this fundamentally shifts anything. Like yeah. bottom line. Yeah. Becca, what about you? So I kind of think debates are political porn. Um, so everybody goes into it wanting, you know, wanting their end result and no matter what side you're on, you kind of like get your end result because that's what you're looking for. Um, I have a very hard time believing that anybody, well, I have a hard time believing anybody's undecided right now anyway, but apparently those, those people exist, but I have a very hard time believing, (laughs) a very hard time believing that anybody undecided was sitting down to watch that debate. So there's no, you know, and Fred, Fred and I have talked about this, I think in the last recording, maybe two, two recordings ago, that, you know, persuadable voter is not, it's not really a thing. And, you know, watching a debate is not going to persuade anybody, but it will energize your base, you know, so for all of the, the leftists, the progressives, 
you know, the story now line is, look, he's still such a bully. He's such, you know, he's such a jerk. This is why we have to get him out of office. It feeds into their end result. It feeds into their natural conclusion. You know, for Trump supporters, you know, their end result is, look, he could stand up and he's going to be strong and he's not going to take shit from anybody. And, you know, this is, you know, he's the down home, you know, guy that we want leading us. Um, and th they got what they wanted from it. And neither side is really going to move at this point, one way or the other, certainly not based on a debate. So, I mean, as painful as it, as it was to watch, so I've heard, I didn't actually watch it. Um, You're not full supposed disclosure. to admit that. <laughs> Full disclosure, I did not watch it. Not sad about that either. Um, <laughs> you know, each side got what they wanted out of it and got what they needed out of it. But, you know, it does seem like, you know, the the Trump supporters at least are not saying that Trump won. They're just also That's not saying true. that Biden. They're also not saying that Biden won. But you know, it's an all sides, all lives matter in the debate kind of you know kind of response. So in some respects, that probably is a good thing. But again, I just I don't think debates persuade people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, you're probably right. And your point about polarization and, and excitement. Is definitely well taken. I mean, I, I think like the, so much of this race is about is like the it's the force of gravity around Donald Trump, right? Like that's what we have. So in terms of positive polarization, he is exciting his own base, which is about like seventy percent of the Republican Party, maybe at this point. I mean, it's thirty percent, thirty-five percent of the electorate, pretty consistently, is like his hardcore base. Um, it also negatively polarizes liberal Democrats, right? People who are in it because they don't like Donald Trump. So Joe Biden's strategy going into this is just to allow him to be the path of least resistance for those moderate voters who might swing, theoretically, right? He achieved that, I guess. Sure, we'll give it to him, right? Um, there was another point I was going to make, but I forgot it. So Fred, I'm going to toss it off. <laughs> no worries. You got time to bring it back. Um, I, I tend to agree with, with both assertions. I, I do think that, you know, that there is a recent, and I don't know how recent you could say this is, right? It was, it was eight years ago. But there's a recent data point that points to the debate actually having some impact on polls and public perception. And that was President Obama's first debate against Mitt Romney in 2012, where Obama was just awful. Universally across the board, you could be the most liberal Democrat there is, he came out flat. He was disinterested. He reminded me of H.W. Bush debating Clinton in 92 and just they're just having this aura of like, I'm above this guy. I don't want to or need to be here. Um, and, and, and the polls thereafter sort of reflected that. Now, of course, Obama bounced back. Um, but but there but there is, you know, somewhat relatively, I don't want to say recent because, again, that was almost a decade ago. But but data point for that. That being said. I, I'm of the opinion that Joe Biden won the debate. Very fair. Now, I recognize my, my, my bias here. I don't think there's a way anyone really loses a debate to Donald Trump. But even backing up to that, I don't think there's a – I think perception is, is what drives political conversation, political punditry, and people who go to the polls. And like you said, Becca, there was probably some intentionality to the way in which they approached the debate, right? Let's just bully Joe Biden – Try to try to get him off his rocker. If he if he stutters, rather than actually saying and acknowledging that it's a stutter, we'll just say he's senile and sleepy and and old. Which 
I guess it's probably the only issue that any quote unquote undecided voters might actually swing about. Now, I don't trust anybody who's undecided at this point anyway. Like, I don't want you anywhere near my life. I, you just cannot be trusted as a human being. And that goes for either side, right? Even if you're voting for Trump, like at this point in a pandemic with recession level unemployment and everything you've seen over the last four years, if you're undecided at this point, like there's just something going on with you personally that I can't have that in my life. But anyway, um, I, I think the strategy backfires here for for one primary reason and that if that were a woman on stage elizabeth warren hillary clinton kamala harris whatever i think public perception is totally different right now and i think trump looks like this strong leader who can't be um you know pushed into a corner or back down so on and so forth the strategy just, just doesn't work for an elder white guy it just doesn't um and i think that is why even when you talk to like base republicans None of them are saying Trump won this debate, like you said, Becca. They, they, they will, none of them are going to say Joe Biden won it, but you can't look at, you, you can't approach any sort of conversation, one, with a former vice president, two, with a guy who's been in the Senate for three decades, three, with an elder white man, with that sort of brash nature, and think that's going to come off well. And it completely backfired. Now, the most, the thing I took away from the debate, thing I loved most was, uh, well, you shut up, man. Um, and, and I love that too, but I totally recognize it needs to be said that like, again, a woman couldn't have said that. A black guy couldn't have said that. Like a, a non-elder white guy, I don't even think Bernie Sanders could have said because he's already just always kind of riled up and has sort of like this angry... Uh, this is the left's version of, of Trump. Right. This isn't me saying this. This is just, you know, perception. I think of all the Democratic candidates, Joe Biden was the only one that could have received that in positive light and said the things that he said and came off as presidential. He looked in the camera and called him a clown a couple of times, right? Which is an accurate description. You know, he told him, well, you shut up, just keep yapping. Like, I, I, I don't think there's anybody else who was on that democratic debate stage, not Buttigieg, not Sanders, not Klobuchar, so on and so forth, who could have emerged from the debate, not just, you know, unflinched, but in some ways, in some ways a little bit stronger than he was before um, than Joe Biden. Now, I don't know if that speaks to something that like, you know, Democratic-based voters knew in February that we just didn't. That's a totally different conversation. Um, but but I do think that that stands as, as something he can take away. Like you said, I don't think the race changes at all. Look, the, the, the polls here have been steady, not just this year, but for the past two years. Um, but Biden, Biden has consistently had a level set, pretty consistent lead over Trump. Uh, I don't see the change in the next couple of days. I don't see a change in the next couple of weeks. I'm a little more bullish on his chances than Becca, I'm sure. Um, but... Um, but I don't know. That's my takeaway. No, yeah, I mean, like... I, I don't know. I, it, I kind of go both ways, you know, with with the woman comment. Um, a woman like Hillary Clinton, who's not, who's going to stand there and not take his shit, is going to lose that debate because there's enough misogyny that runs through this country that she's going to be labeled a bitch. For she's going to lose the debate from the media slash punditry. Right. right. If you have another woman, and I don't, I don't even have anybody in particular in mind when I say this, but if you have another woman who can be softly firm, I think she actually wins more than Biden does because that same misogyny actually helps in a, oh my goodness, what, she just got beat up by this guy. We have to run in and protect her like this, this um, you know, knight on a white horse kind of thing. I just don't know how, I mean, I'm sure there is that fine line that you can walk there. I'm just not sure which candidate would be able to walk it. 
Um, I don't think, for example, Kamala would have done it. I think she would have stood up to him and she's not going to, um, she would not have then won the debate because she would have been labeled with, you know, whatever the, you know, we're not allowed to be forthcoming. Angry black woman. You know. There you go. <laughs> that too. <laughs> not exactly where I was going, but yes, that actually, that also works. And, and to be fair, I like Kamala a whole lot. Like I would have loved to see her at the top of the ticket. I just think that the way especially older white men look at especially a minority female but I, but any female who stands up you know i it just doesn't it just doesn't play well in their misogynistic you know worldview so um i do think there was there could have been an opportunity for for a woman there um, but I agree. I think Biden did exactly what he could have done because he's also, he's also kind of walking that line, you know, oh, he was so, you know, he shouldn't even do this debate again because he was so mistreated and, you know, so bullied and nobody should have to stand up, you know, nobody should have to stand there and take this kind of abuse. So he got a little bit of that as well. Um, but he did exactly what he did. He, he pushed back in the right places. He stood firm, you know, the stutter didn't get, get the best of him. You know, I mean, I don't know what else he could have done. I agree with that. Nathan, last word on this? I would say two things. Uh, you reminded me of my, my first point that I already forgot. Um, but <laughs> I, I think we're kind of getting at this, this problem, which is like this whole who won versus didn't won. Uh, it's just like a problematic paradigm in general. Yeah. Right? Because it is really, really squishy. Like we've sportified politics quite yes. a bit in the yes. past couple decades, and it's been really, really bad for our public discourse. But particularly when you talk about a debate, like there's no scores, right? So like war rooms and spin spin rooms and, and all those like consultants get paid a whole lot because they can go out there and affect the public perception of the debate. Really who won the debate is decided in the next 24 hours after the debate, right? So you go to the debate with the full intention of giving your spokespeople and your war rooms and your, your social media people the amount of firepower they need to win the debate in the next 24 to 72 hours. Like that's what it is. In that term, Joe Biden's team has done an excellent, excellent job, yeah. right? I mean, their, their social media was on point the entire time, regardless of what was happening on stage. Um, and we've all kind of settled on the fact that, you know, Trump didn't really achieve the things that he did. So I think the best way to, to, to think about the debates is not necessarily who won or didn't win, because that type of dichotomy just doesn't lend itself well, particularly to candidates of color and women because you're always gonna find a reason to rationalize how they didn't win, right? It, it's just, it's a lot easier to do that for someone who has all this baggage coming in just because of the history that we have as, as a society, right? Um, but that being said, did each campaign achieve the goals that they needed? If you're Donald Trump, you're coming into this race saying, I need to shake something up or I need to tear Joe Biden down. He achieved neither of those things. If you're Joe Biden, you just need to reassure moderate voters that you're not you're not Bernie Sanders or AOC, which he did, the and then you coach, yep. and he did that, right? <laughs> so if by that metric, Joe Biden won. Um, the other thing that I would say is that I think Joe Biden was actually restrained for Joe Biden, right? I mean, you've seen him kind of lash out at people at times when he gets angry. Yeah. There are, if I'm his political consultant coming into that debate and I'm saying, okay, well, they're going to mention Hunter Biden, you know that's going to happen. The most obvious thing to do is hit Donald Trump on his kids. I mean, there's plenty of oppo on Ivanka, Eric, and, and Don Jr. for you to pull from. That's a deep chest to go to. He didn't do that. And I would doubt, I, I would be shocked to hear that his oppo specialists or his debate prep didn't sit there with him and say, 
this is something you could do. I think the reason he didn't do it is because when you attack those kids, you you make it seem like you're on the same playing field, which he didn't. Mm-hmm. He did a really good job of staying above the fray there. That being said, Joe Biden is still Joe Biden. So the shut up man, the, you know, you just keep yapping. That's kind of baked into Joe Biden. That's what people know about him. Yeah. They already understand that he's going to talk in that type of like colloquial aspect. And that's a good thing. That's always been a benefit for him in all of his races. So he leaned into his strengths and stayed away from his weaknesses. And I think that that's got to be effective. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And I particularly love the point of like the sportification of politics, um, which is pretty much what they is. I mean, even all the montages of like, you know, marketing for the debate, it's just like, you know, the faces and them walking slow. And it's just like, yo, we're not watching the NFC championship game. Um, like we've, we've, like we've, we've, we've got to chill out on this. Um, anyway, unfortunately, um, our political discourse has unraveled. Hopefully this national nightmare is over in, you know, 34 days. Um, but I don't think, I think folks are like, and this brings us to our next segment. There's a lot of people talking about, oh, you know, we've never been this divided or things have never been this bad. And I guess bluntly, things have never been this poor. Um, but I've, I have a personal affinity um, for a guy who was synonymous with the 80s, and it's not a good affinity. Um, I think Ronald Reagan continues to haunt America um, and, and uh, has left a lasting stain um, on, on what we call our democracy. But I've long said, I think I started saying like 2016, uh, I, thought, I thought Trump was Reagan just with more brashness and less political uh, aptitude. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing right now is <sighs> Make America Great Again is a direct copy from Ronald Reagan. That was his campaign slogan. I, I, I think there's, a, there's an affinity amongst sort of like white middle-class folks with the 80s because it was such a time of greed. And we had recession level unemployment, uh, you had a demagogue in office, you had rampant inequality, you had sort of the unmasking of the American landscape from a subtle perspective, right? And I think the attempt now amongst those same folks is to reintroduce the 80s, except we just don't have the veneer of a guy uh, who's a little more clean and and soft spoken um, with with his racism, right? Like Trump's just overt. Reagan was a little subtle. Uh, Trump is just openly greedy, right? I'm smart because I don't pay taxes. Reagan is just subtly greedy. Um, you know, oh well, it's just you know lower taxes and you know the era of big government when I was Bill Clinton. But um, all these all these sort of code names for for uh, for racism for misogyny, so on and so forth. And one of the articles I actually pulled up, and this is from 2019, it actually relays, I don't know if you all saw the movie called Us by Jordan Peele. Um, it was a good sort of um, reflection of that. And it's actually one of the things I didn't really catch all the symbols in Us that I think whether Jordan Peele put them in intentionally or not, but it's a good encapsulation of the 80s, I think, in a way that we struggle to sort of communicate with each other now. Anyway, I'm gonna highlight one of the paragraphs in here. Um, it's from Saloon.com. Uh, it's by Amanda Marcotte. She says, the title is The Reagan Era and Us, Sins of the 80s Still Haunt in America in Jordan Peele's horror tale. Uh, and I'm just going to highlight this one paragraph and then uh, just definitely want to talk about it. But she says, quote, the present moment in us is haunted by the 80s, which is a pretty direct representation of the current horrors of American life. After all, we're now ruled by Donald Trump, who spent the 80s as an icon of that era's excessive materialism and economic inequality that has accelerated since then. 
And Trump ran on a campaign that could be safely described as nostalgic for the 80s, right down to his Make America Great Again slogan, stolen directly from Reagan and racist fantasies about urban crime straight out of lurid 80s tabloids. Now, the past few months have seen a bunch of the, has seen the really, I want to say reintroduction, but definitely sort of mainstream reintroduction to the whole idea of law and order. Um, If, I don't, well, number one, have we ever recovered from the 80s? And two, if we haven't, how do we get out of the Reagan era? Becca, you want to lead us off? No. Why not? <laughs> no. Because this is your rant. This is, this is like the bread and butter of who you are philosophically. You've got to start us off here. Why would I start us off? I just, I just went on a whole rant there, introducing it. Yeah, because that was just like historical. That's not like deep in your rant. Oh my goodness. Well, no, my attempt. Huh? I want to hear Fred's take first. My attempt there was to prime it, right? We're trying to be a, a show that is more than just opinion. This isn't just me who feels this way. Um, I think, look, I, I, I wish this weren't the case. And I say all this like with the caveat of like both that introduction, but then also um, like I did like part of my certification for undergrad is the presidency and its studies and so on and so forth. Not just the people who occupy the office, but how they impact policy and culture for that decade and then for the times that, that you know, follow. Unfortunately, I, I think we are still in sort of the Reagan revolution. My, my hope is that it's towards the tail end of it. I, uh, I was watching CNN uh, portions, like I said, the debate the other night, and Van Jones and Rick Santorum were going back and forth. Van Jones was like, oh, this, this country is a center-left country. Uh, Rick Santorum says it's a center-right country, and and it, it it pains me to say it, and people get mad when I say it. this country is still center-right. Um, I say that not from an opinion standpoint. The data bears that out, number one. Number two, what I spent the last couple of years doing was working for the Democratic Party, traveling all over this country, talking and meeting the people. I guarantee you, I promise me, just trust me, the country is still very center-right. I think that happened because, and this is why the two most important elections before this or 1988 and 2016. I have this theory. I need to write a paper or a book and sort of hammer it out. But I have this theory that it takes 12 years of one party control in the White House to change uh, whatever sort of political landscape the country seems to be in. And so like from 1932 until 1980 such, we were still in the New Deal era, right? Even in the late 70s, right? There's no way, you don't get a guy like Jimmy Carter who's a peanut farmer if you don't have the, the long lasting sort of impact of 12 years and then another four years of FDR and Truman. And sort of the idea of the new deal of government intervention and support and so on and so forth. I flipped, back, flipped that back to 2016, which in retrospect, that was probably the most important election of our lives and we blew it anyway, we won't need to rehearse that. Um, but I, what, what happened, I think the stains of the 80s still live with us the greed, the racism, the misogyny, um, the lack of government, you know, support, the dismantling of unions, so on and so forth. I think what helped get us out of that was this brand new invention called the internet, where everyone was able to, a lot of people got rich, but in a way, the, the internet was the only thing where that actually led to some sort of trickle-down economics, right? And that you had this life-changing global changing phenomenon from an economic standpoint. I don't see anything like that happening again in our lifetimes. <laughs> Not something that changes the, the magnitude of, of global economies and the workforce in that way. And so my fear is that 
if you needed something that drastic to help put a dent into racism and to inequality in the middle part of the decade that followed the 80s, my, my worry is what does that entail? What does that mean for where we find ourselves four years from now, eight years from now? Because the mistake we made in 16 was not turning out. And so we've got 150 plus more federal judges. We may or may not get another conservative Supreme Court, but there's the fear, there's the, there's the concern that it doesn't matter. You can have democratic supermajorities. Are these progressive legislations gonna be able to hold up uh, as they get you know, appealed in courts and so on and so forth? And so that is sort of the lasting concern for me there. And it's the thing that concerns me the most about the American Republic going forward uh, is that we're still living with the sins of privileged white people from the 80s. And I don't know how we're going to get out of it. Yeah. I mean, so <clears throat> I definitely agree with you that we are living in a center right. And I understand it's, it's fact. It's not something for me to agree or disagree with. Um, but I certainly think that's true. I mean, you look at a lot of countries around the world and we may not even be center right. Like we may be further than center right. We don't um, have a leftist party. Like when you no. think about it from other industrial, the Democrats are center right too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why I'm, I'm just like, eh, I'm not sure we're center right. We may be like, right. You know, like we fall for pretty far on that spectrum, especially when you look at you know, democratic socialist countries, um, you know, like Scandinavian countries um, who have seen us shift to the right, which puts them still left of us. Uh, you know, I just don't, I don't, I don't see us being anything that then on the right side of the political spectrum. Uh, I do disagree with Trump being the new Reagan. Um, I mean, I see the parallels, but at the same time, Reagan seemed much more of an organized system of, you know, misguided, yes, but trying to move the country forward. And I just don't see the current administration, A, being organized um, for anything besides destruction, destroying, you know, all of the, all of the social safeguards, all of any protections that we possibly had for any sort of minorities or, you know, anything like that. Um, especially working in immigration, you know, I, we've just seen the systematic dismantling and disen not a disenfranchisement because that's voting, but, you, you know, just taking away basic fundamental legal rights that like, that's what literally our founding fathers were, were fighting for, you know, to have their day in court, that sort of thing. Um, and I just don't, I don't see it in the same place. But then again, I also don't see Trump as a Republican. Um, to be fair, I don't think Trump is a Republican. Yes, he runs under the Republican Party. You know, they support him for God knows what reason at this point. But he's not a Republican because he's he doesn't uphold the principles of a party. He hold, upholds the principles of himself and self. You know, he's a Trumpian. He's not a Republican. So I just I don't in some you know I can see the parallels, but I just you know the biggest one being you know charismatic you know, TV entertainment personality, but, you know, the policies going forward are just not as, I don't think they have the same intent behind them. So I would, I would bristle a little about that. Um, and then the third point, I guess, about the internet, I really think that's why we've seen such polarization because we get on the internet, you know, we get on social media 
and we put out our opinions as the word that has come from on high in our memes or our, you know, Facebook posts or whatever it is. And there's no face-to-face -face discord. Before the internet, you know, you were talking with your neighbors because that's who you talk to about pol politics and events of the day. And we don't do that as much because it's all on social media. So you get to somebody and unless it's, you know, one of, one of the three of us, somebody similar, you know, who really wants to talk about this kind of thing, everybody goes, oh, I heard all about this on Facebook. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Let's talk about something much more positive. And you just don't have that same discourse. And I think yeah. that's why we're in a hurry. Yeah, I'd agree. Walter Cronkite's not walking through that door, unfortunately. So I'm going to take the contrarian position to a lot of this. I think we're in a lot better of a place than the 1980s. And granted, I, I was born in 1997. So, you know, do with that information what you will. Um, oh, hold on. But, I need some sort of like gavel or like the the ring, you know, the bell round one because Fred's about to, you the, guys are about to go at it. I'm ready. I'm ready. Era, I'll be that era, moderator. The era big government is over. Give me that mute button. Wait, give me here, that mute here, button. Here is my argument. All right. 1980 presidential election, how many electoral votes did Ronald Reagan get? It's like over 500, right? I mean, he won like 44 states, 45 states. Yeah, he, won Jimmy he, won, he won 49 states. He went to right? Mondale's ass. Yeah, like he, he roundly kicked some ass in both of those elections, leaning on the exact same tactics that we're seeing now. So the parallels that I'm seeing between Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan are very much rhetorical parallels. It's just that Donald Trump is a lot clumsier than Ronald Reagan was, right? So he's just very bad at hiding the actual undertone, but he's saying the same things and the undertones are pretty much still there, right? Um, tactically, the parallels are, are playing out similarly. That being said, Donald Trump lost the popular vote in 2016, right? He's on his way to losing the popular vote in 2020. And I would say the boundaries of our debate have expanded quite largely. So like the 1980s, you're thinking about a majority white electorate that has basically blocked out minority populations from popular debate in much, and, and to a large extent, right? So the, the cultural fault lines that our political debate is falling under in the 1980s is just far more predisposed to dog whistling than it is in 2020. Because, you know, as, as much as we're like, as much as I, I might disagree with certain branches of the Democratic Party, um, which also I'm going to go ahead and disagree with the idea that we don't have a liberal party in this country. Becca, you know my theory on this, that we are actually in the middle of a three-party system. Um, but I'll table that for a second. Um, they'll call that out. Right? They'll sit there and say that actually is just racist to say for X and Y reasons, and then we can have a debate about that. In 1980s, that, that debate wasn't happening because it was just seen as consensus. That even carries into Democratic presidencies for Bill Clinton, right? Era big government's over. That's Bill Clinton. Welfare Queens is Bill Clinton. Super you have a lot more homogeny between, you know, um, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party because the electorate was just a lot more homogenous in terms of the way they thought about these things. Now we're having the debate, so we're feeling more pain, but the debate is actually healthier because we're able to call out these things. So I, I think that while we're dealing with the ghosts of Reagan, we're not still in the era of Reagan. A lot has changed. Um, now, I'm not going to say that, that our political situation that we're currently in is good, but it is different. Like, it's functionally different. Um, now, in terms of, of not having a liberal party, I firmly believe that, there, that the Democratic Party is actually just an amalgamation of two-party, you have a moderate branch, and you have a liberal branch, right? And 
the two are often in conflict with each other. They behave in, in separate ways. And in safe democratic seats, they are actually having real legitimate policy battles over what's happening, right? So if we were in a multi-party system with ranked choice voting or some sort of, of representational system, you might see the two parties split off, but then behave really similarly to the way they are now, right? Just, just basically cutting deals based on who is in power and what seats and what chamber, but really just doing everything they can to hold the coalition together, which is the way I see the Joe Biden presidency is that like, he's more of a parliamentary leader than anything else, right? He has not really gone out of his way to impose his will on the Democratic Party. He's done everything he can to build the coalition. And if this were 2004 and he was, he was the Democratic person who won, who won the nomination, you can see him just saying, this is what I think about policy. This is what I'm going to do. Screw everyone else in the party. He's not doing that because we do have functionally two parties wrapped into one. There's just no actual incentive within our system for them to extricate themselves from one another because it would only damage the system and they're both smart enough to know it, right? Um, so I think better off than Reagan and in terms of our political discourse anyways on a population level and that we actually do have two parties that are having debates on, on this stuff. And the third thing about your, your, your 12 year theory, I think it's a decent theory. I think one of the things that would confound it in, in this current system is that it presupposes that any party is going to actually do things, right? Like you're assuming that, that a party will have done something by the end of 12 years that the voters can then go back and take in their lives and, and put a referendum to when Mitch McConnell has basically proven that to be bunk. You can basically sit there and do practically nothing in Congress and still get reelected because you can just keep railing against all the other people in Congress. And that's the theory. I, I don't know, you might still be right about 12 years being the time frame for another set of reasons, but I think it would have to be for like a different set of reasons that voters are coming back and changing their cultural preferences because it's not gonna come from a place of actual policy change because the obstruction is so much that things have basically stayed the same, if not just been eroded through other informal mechanisms. Yeah, yeah, nothing to do with policy. Should have framed that better. It has everything to do with having single party control of the largest microphone in the world or in the history of civilization, which is the presidency of the United States. Nothing to do with actually passing anything. Cause like 62% of people I think support the ACA now. Like I, I one, I think that's, that's twofold. One, it's them actually benefiting from it personally. And then two, I think there's something to hearing over eight, 10, 12 years about like how many people knew could tell you succinctly what a preexisting condition was in 2007, for example, unless you had a pre-existing condition. You know what I mean? Like most people support, I think 57%, and I'll try to find these things and link them in the, uh, in the podcast notes so people can see them. Majority of people support a wealth tax, higher taxes on people who have a net worth of $5 million or more. These are things that were foreign to American political discourse before Barack Obama. Uh, and we didn't make a whole lot of progress on some of them, uh, for example, when he took office, most people were opposed to gay marriage. President Obama himself was opposed to gay marriage. So I think there's like, there's the, and, and you have a very valid point in that there is a flip side concern and that we really don't have a functioning executive or legislative branch. We don't have a functioning executive branch because of who's there right now. So maybe in January, we'll have a functioning executive branch, but we haven't had a functioning legislative branch since what, 2009? <laughs> And, and, and so there, there's, there, there are longer term consequences to that. But no, you're right. I think for me, it's just 
the the well, and we can trace that non-functioning legislature back to Green Greenridge. <laughs> can't say his name. You, no, you don't oh, need good to. Good old Newt. There you go. We'll just go with first name. Good old Newt. You know, back in the 90s, too. I mean, that was really the start of the real polarization, which again stemmed from your Reagan era to go back to that. Um, that I mean, that's where it came from. Yeah. And I mean, and that's what's raised a lot of the judicial stakes, right? Like power doesn't just evaporate, it re readjusts, mm. right? So the power that's held at the federal level isn't just gonna go away because right. someone is not enough to exercise it. It just shifts over to another branch. So to your point, right? Like this is a concerted strategy, right? Is undermine the, the, the legislature, kick every decision over to, to the judicial branch and then just pack the court with as many people as you can. I mean, that has been the concerted strategy since the Reagan era, which is, is a lot of the Reagan era, right? Yeah. I mean, you think about the big decisions that have come out, Obergefell, right, gay marriage, um, you know, things like Citizens United. You can imagine a world where the legislature goes back and fixes those things or changes them, right? Because that's a thing that they could do. They pass laws. And technically, the judiciary is supposed to interpret those laws. Yeah. So if the legislature disagreed with the interpretation of the judiciary, they could just pass a law. They haven't because there's no incentive to legislate. And to your point, Fred, about not having an executive, a functioning executive branch, I, I might actually disagree with you on that point too. I think we have a functioning executive branch. We don't have a functioning executive, right? So like Donald Trump himself is doing a whole lot of shit that's just absolutely insane. That being said, his cabinet secretaries are rolling back regulations. They are not enforcing things. They are changing the ways that the agencies do things. The State Department has basically been gutted because they decided that that's just a thing they don't want. Have, who knows what Rick Perry's doing? Is he even in office anymore? I, I don't know. Ben Carson, like, what does HUD do right now, honestly? Like, if their goal to go into the executive branch was just to stall government and kick everything back to the judiciary, they are succeeding. And that is a thing that they can do because executive overreach, despite the fact that like, I don't like to agree with the Tea Party on a whole lot of things. And I don't think this argument was made in good faith at the time when it was, but executive overreach is starting to become an issue that we are seeing in everyday lives because the legislature isn't doing anything. So they're kicking things to the executive and then kicks it over to the judiciary and then Mitch McConnell just packs the court over and over, which kind of, if we go back to the debate, because I love callbacks, it's like a flashback, right? To the last 15 minutes. Um, there was the question about court packing, right? And I don't think they've ever settled on a pretty good, on a good answer about it. They were just like, if I answer this question, it's just going to be the issue, right? Which is, I mean, a very honest answer. Like, I don't want to talk about that because it's not really the issue at hand here. And it's like, I don't want to talk about it. Fair enough. But I do think that the Democratic Party really has to set forth a vision for what political debate should look like in the future. Because I think everyone can agree this isn't working, right? So like, if you couch that in a larger base of we just need political reform. So if you to tell me that the system is so not is not so broken that we should just be throwing tools off the side of the boat, like haphazardly, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you because this is clearly not working and we need to be open to all, all ideas and suggestions and then figure out if it's a good idea or not. But like for you to tell me that two weeks into the debate on should we or should we not expand the Supreme Court to make it more democratic and to stand against the anti-majoritarian rule in the United States, Right. I mean, like, I don't know. Let's have that discussion. What's the bad, what's, what's the bad thing about having that discussion? So, you know, yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. And we, and we, uh, 
we got to wrap this up here. But I think, I think all those things are good discussions. I think they should all happen. I think the problem there is that, and I think it goes back to the belief that, you know, we do have a three-party system and one party living within the democratic apparatus is just that, is that you're, we are, Democrats are naturally at a disadvantage because there's a seemingly homogenous, you know, major party who can talk about the same three or four things, lower taxes, less government, more military spending, so on and so forth, because it's 62% made up of old white guys or white guys in general. And so then you've got this other entity made up of all kinds of folks, <laughs> women, LGBTQIA+, Blacks, Hispanics, South Asians. It's just you're, you're, the, the, the footing is nowhere near equal. And, and what that leads to, I think, is partly what we see in the legislature. You have folks who don't have an incentive to legislate because whereas you've got one party who can stick to the same script of four or five things, you've got another who, depending upon their district and how things are at the national level and how things are swaying, they've got to try to, you know, ride quite a few boats at the same time. And I don't know how you get, I don't know how you get to a point to where you get around that, to where you can have these kind of discourses <clears throat> without it, um, impacting Democrats more disproportionately than Republicans. I, I would definitely agree. I guess I would just give my read to that is that one party is doing democracy and the other isn't. Right. Because democracy is all about the fight. That's the oh yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Like but the problem is we got 40% of folks who who think democracy is having autonomy over women and people of color's bodies in their lives. So yeah. <laughs> You know, it's just like we're at, we're at a structural disadvantage here. And it's like, look, it's time to rewrite some parts of this constitution. And Marsha Blackburn, she's a senator from Tennessee, was like, we don't rewrite the constitution. I'm like, you're an idiot. We've written it. We've rewritten it 27 times. That's what amendments are. Um, and it's just like, look, like, it's okay to say this is an outdated document, right? There are certain things in it that need updates. Um, Electoral College is one of them. Wyoming having the same number of senators as California is one of them. Like there are a variety of things here that are incredibly problematic and no longer apply to whatever the heck was going on here in 1776. For, for goodness sake, like the original document said it was cool to have slavery and that women couldn't vote and not just white guys, but only white guys with property could vote. We need to stop acting like that document was so perfect. Like it was good. It was a wonderful experiment. They did great for the time. It's lovely. It was lovely. a good start. It was that? a good start. And you can't argue with that. You can't argue that it's imperfect. We've amended the damn thing 27 times. Like it's just time to do it again. Anyway, that's my rant. Becca. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think we need to have, we need to stick a pin in a conversation about focusing on, for example, increasing the number of, um, justices on the Supreme Court and changing the way the Senate is made up because, you know, the Supreme Court takes and decides very few cases. You know, in my day-to-day, -day, you know, lawyering kind of thing, the Supreme Court has very little impact on what I do. Yeah. The court packing that has gone on in lower courts, mm -hmm. uh, the intentional disregard of safeguards that were put into place during um, 
H.W. Bush's era for administrative law judges, um, non-Article Three judges, that has a huge, yeah. huge impact on the everyday lives of people that is, you know, much, much more impactful, I would say, than a Supreme Court. And yeah, I get it. You know, Supreme Court's exciting and whatever. And they do make some really big decisions on really big issues of our day. But they have to, those issues have to get to the Supreme Court, which is a multi-layered approach. So I don't think we can ignore that. Um, I also would maybe push back a little bit on the, you know, Wyoming versus California senators and the, the balance that goes on there. So um, we can definitely like get the ring bell out for that one too and see, uh, go toe to toe, see where that one comes out. Um, but yeah, definitely conversations for, for another day, I think, because we're, we're going out of the Reagan, Reagan realm. Uh. Hey, hot take. Uh, H.W. was a was a pretty good president. Maybe not good, but he was a. Ooh. Oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. That was. Talk, we can talk about that later. But see, that's things like natural. Like, oh, H.W. was H.W. wasn't a bad president. No, no, no. No, he wasn't. He was a nothing president. He. He was better than. He just. He was better president than Clinton. Wow. Well, right. Well, he just didn't change anything. He just let it all ride. Let it all ride. Well, he did raise taxes. Read my lips. Um, Nathan, any parting shots for us today? It's our special guest. Um, I, I will give you my, my kind of corollary to the discussion we were just having, which is that if we want to prioritize issues that will ensure like the longevity of the United States, like to like, make sure that it actually continues to exist, right? I think that we really have to focus on two issues, political reform and climate change. Because those are the two things that make sure people survive in the United States and people survive on the planet. It's not real, bro. So, no, not so much. <laughs> a hard disagree. But I mean, like, I, I think that it's all these people. young kids. Wait, where are our walkers, Fred? Did he feel so old to begin with? Oh, you kids talking about the world's getting hotter. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, I don't know. I think that we have to really take stock of the priorities that we have. And then number two, like for the Democratic Party as a whole, I think we should be okay to say that we messed up. Like there was a, there was a point in that debate where he said, um, you know, Democrats have controlled cities for X amount of years and they're still bad and all that thing. I think, um, you know, so you see Kim Classic doing a lot of that in Baltimore. I'm, I'm in Baltimore now. So that's kind of what I think about. I think the Democratic Party, like for all of the things that they could say about that, what's so wrong with admitting that we were wrong? <laughs> you know what I mean? Just saying like, yeah, we did that. We passed the 1994 crime bill because we were fully bought into the 1980s paradigm that, you know, just putting police on the streets would work and that we don't have to worry about corollary, like secondary impacts to communities. We were so wrong. That's right. And we're going to do better. Like, let's just, but like the, the proposition from the other parties. Clinton did it too, Fred. Clinton did it too. Don't just blame Reagan. Tough on crime. He it got per, it. It was Fred. pervasive for a while. He got it from Ronald Reagan. Yeah, but he but he used it. So but let's admit it. that he was wrong. I shouldn't have followed in Reagan's footsteps. We shouldn't have passed that bill. Or there were good parts of that bill. There were also really catastrophic parts of that bill. We won't oh, pass sure. the catastrophic parts. There we'll were some good down. parts. You're right. Jacob Wetterling went Violence against women was in there. Yeah. Yeah. So like Let's just admit that we were wrong on some things and that we're going to do better in the future. And we're not going to take you back to the 1980s when we were wrong on almost all of it. Right? <laughs> I feel like that's and, a really... and that we've learned from our mistakes. Yeah. I feel like that's an easy debate thing to pull out. So if we're looking forward to the next debate, community town hall, right? Like it's going to be in front of real constituents. That's Joe Biden's thing. Oh. 
And I think that he just accepts that we have done some things wrong in the past and that we're going to do better in the future. And I think that if you give people that message, we just trust democratic electorate that they will understand and, and be like, okay, well, you know what? We're actually going to try to do better this time. And we have to be a little more forgiving to each other. We can't keep each other on Twitter all the time, but a little bit of a rant. <laughs> no, fair. I mean, even our political discourse, you know, Reagan was a bully. Um, anyway, it's my theory. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Nathan, thanks for joining. We have to have you on another time so we can fully dive into the uh, third party within the Democratic Party. Um, we're on a lot of rants. Anyway, you guys join us next week.